Take back some things you already done, done. No. You blame things that you do on somebody else. Uh, no. But they all see, but they all see is you need help. Mm. Oh, but still you try so hard to cover up your games. You try so hard. Oh, hoping that one day oh, something's gonna change. Hey, good evening and welcome to Normalizing Atheism and the Brute Facts podcast hosted by Eddie Kroom. And Eddie Kroom will be out shortly to host the show. We got Dr. Richard Carrier with us tonight, folks. You spend so much of your life scheming and trying to get over. Got you wondering why you come around all you get is cold show. Uh, yeah. Oh, you try so hard uh, to cover up your games. You try so hard. Uh, hoping that one day something's gonna change. Welcome to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Kroon. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. Welcome to Brute Facts. Tonight we have a very special guest. I am very honored to have Dr. Richard Carrier. Uh, although I'm a theist, and yes, I believe in Jesus, um, he's done tremendous amount of work on it. Uh, and being a Bayesian epistemologist myself, I admire the Bayesian analysis that he applies to his historical method. Uh, thank you, Pasta Mike, for that wonderful intro, all of the logos and everything that you do. Everybody, make sure you go to Normalizing Atheism, Normalizing Atheism and subscribe to Pasta Mike's channel. He's got a lot of good stuff over there, top-notch productions. Um, real quick, I wanted to say, uh, again, I do have a Patreon. If you look in the uh, description, there's a link there. There's a link to my website. 
I'm not looking to make any money off of anything here. Just want to try to cover the cost of hosting all of this and the podcast platforms. Also, for future plans, we're not going to be doing as many live shows coming up. I want to work more on some series to kind of bring uh, philosophy to a more of a layman's terms, considering I'm a layman myself. So without further ado, let's bring on the star of the show, Dr. Richard Carrier. Hey, hi. <laughs> How are you doing? Doing well. Glad to be here. I am honored to have you on. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Did you grow up religious? Were you always atheist, agnostic? How, how do you kind of identify? Yeah, my backstory is weird, right? I'm, I'm different from what most people think. Uh, like a lot of atheists, especially atheist activists, a lot of them, uh, you and I were talking about this back channel before, um, come from a, you know, a, a fundamentalist background, maybe like uh, where they've dealt with a lot of like extreme conservative views and abuse and other things like that. I didn't have that experience, right? I actually had a good experience with Christians uh, until I became old enough to vote. Uh, and then that's when I, I ran into, I, uh, then I, that's when I discovered that the Christian right runs the country, basically, and at, at, back then, especially, uh, even more so than now. Um, but no, my actual backstory, uh, I grew up uh, very in California, Southern California, very liberal, um, First Methodist family. Um, my parents didn't really require me to believe anything, like they were like, you should, you should figure it out for yourself and choose. Uh, but we went, we went to church. Uh, I did Sunday school. I did all of that stuff, but it was a very, very liberal minded church. Like it was all about more about the community and the values, not about biblical literalism. So like in Sunday school, they would teach Bible stories, but they would also teach like Greek myths and things like that. And they would show the comparison. Like it, the moral of the story is the important thing you're supposed to learn. Like it's, they it, it weren't pushing. It. It's like, this is literally happened. Like Jonah actually wasn't a whale. Like that wasn't part of the thing. Uh, and the social mission was more liberal minded, more progressive, right. Uh, more tolerant, more accepting. Um, so, so I had generally good experiences with Christians. Uh, I, I would run into the occasional like fundamentalist in high school and we just thought they were like fringe and weird and uh, had silly beliefs. I, I remember um, a friend of mine, his girlfriend in high school, he had her in tears over the fact that he believed that there might be life on other planets. And, and that, that was our, that was like my introduction to fundamentalism. Like that is a really weird thing to get in tears over. <laughs> uh, right. So, um, so I, I just thought that was fringe and weird, but when I got politically active, when I started getting more involved, that's when I started encountering like fundamentalism and the impact it has on people's lives. And uh, right. then, then it became a problem. But in between uh, in my teenage years, when I was in high school, I actually converted the first religion that I had in the sense that I had faith in it. Um, was Taoism. I actually became convinced Taoist and a philosophical Taoist, not like the pagan superstitious right. magic wielding Taoists. Um, but uh, what was very much a meditative philosophy, very much a, a psychological philosophy. It was, and so the Tao Te Ching was the scriptures. And when I went into the Coast Guard, so I was a Taoist until middle of my service. Uh, I went into the Coast Guard in 1990. And, um, and when I went in, that was my professed religion. So I was my declared religion and my service record. And uh, you're allowed one devotional item in boot camp. And so I took my own hand-scribed Tao Te Ching. I picked my favorite English translation from all the different ones. And so I had my own Tao Te Ching that I had transcribed. That was my Bible in boot camp. So that, that's how Taoist I was, right? Uh, and I had religious experiences and lots of things that really were convincing me that Taoism was true. Like it you know, all the things that you hear from Christians talking about, like, it made my life so much better. I was so much happier, uh, right? Like, had all those impacts that uh, Christians talked about. Uh, and so that gave me a different perspective. Um, and I got out of it not by, like, 
being bad or anything like necessarily. I just realized like, actually I'm these experiences I'm having, I'm kind of, All right, I've lost. I lost internet okay. for a second yeah, there. Yeah, you're back. <laughs> you're back. Uh, this is a fantastic screenshot that we have of you right there when it grows. <laughs> yeah. So, so you started so, yeah. to be bad. That's. <laughs> oh right, yeah. <laughs> no, and so uh, yeah, that wasn't. I didn't. It was just that I realized that it was false in the sense that I was fooling myself into believing it, and that it was a human philosophy. It had good ideas and bad ideas, and, right. uh, and that I should approach it that way. And then once I realized that it was false. And I, then I was a seeker. Uh, and then, then a Christian on a naval base asked me to read the Bible. And I said, I, I'll read the whole Bible. And I read the whole Bible. And that's made me an atheist. Uh, by the time I finished the Bible cover to cover, I said, yeah, I'm an atheist. Uh, and so then it was a question, well, then what is true? And so what, for me, it wasn't just a question of rejecting religion at that point. I had had a very useful worldview uh, up to that point. And so I was like, well, if Taoism is false, what is true? And so there's more of a worldview theory. So that's when I got very much in. That's when I started writing my book that became Sense and Goodness Without God, uh, published in 2005. Like I was writing it on my ship and while in the Coast Guard, uh, right? I'd, but it changed many times as I learned more and more because I kept studying these things. And so it evolved completely. But So by the time it published in 2005, it was a much more developed philosophy. But my approach was Aristotelian kind of way of approaching it. It's like, well, epistemology, metaphysics, uh, you know, wow. politics as philosophy, aesthetics as an important part of your worldview it should you should be able to integrate all these things and so that's i was always looking at it from the perspective of positive belief like what, what should atheists believe in rather than not what which belief should they reject uh and so I, that has really changed i think it sent me on different trajectories in a lot of atheists and a lot of atheist right. activists so that that's sort of the nutshell version of my story okay yeah well there's there's so much there uh first of all I thought I knew pretty much everything about you, but I didn't know you were in the Coast Guard. So thank you for your. Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you're welcome. Uh, I I don't regret having done it. It was it was okay. excellent and worth doing. So, yeah, yeah, definitely appreciate that. And the politics part of it is actually, I grew up. Um, my backstory is kind of weird too. I grew up in a fundamentalist family that weren't really practicing Christians, but they sent us to church on Sunday school. I mean, Sunday mornings for Sunday school as kids. Uh -huh. So we had developed this idea and worldview that we just assumed was true. And even into, you know, um, late teens until I really got interested in, you know, science and, and, and all these different things and saw all, saw all of these false dichotomies. But one thing that you stated there that really hits home with me is the political part of it. Mm -hmm. And that is because I went from my mother uh, pretty much, you know, for for a long time, uh, raised three teenage boys uh, with, you know, little help. And she was a hippie. And, you know, I I had been introduced to LGBT couples and minorities and things at a very young age. So we had no issue with accepting people. And that was one of her uh, mantras was, you know, you love everybody, no matter who they are. That's you pretty cool. Judge, yeah. Know. Oh, she, she rocked it. You know, she's a pothead too, but it, <laughs> which there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, so when I got married and had kids and really got into politics, I swung hard, right? I started listening to Rush Limbaugh because I hated him and didn't know anything about him. And then I was mm. like, wait a minute, that meant, wait a minute, you know, oh, by wow. started buying into all this. And 
kind of swung hard right. And when they wanted to, you know, they're supposed to be conservatives and constitutionalists and all these different things. And they wanted to change the Constitution to define marriage. And that's when I started to realize that, you know, it, it's all about who's in power and because they had preached so long about don't mess with the Constitution like it's this holy document right. and all these different things. But when it came up for an issue for them that they thought would benefit their ideology. So that's kind of when I hopped off the train. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, I've been pretty libertarian. I'm a social left, a little fiscal right, more about as moderate as you can get on most things. But it had a huge impact on uh, my it's kind of my deconstruction because I went through you know, a deconstruction like a lot of atheists go through. So it's pretty cool to hear mm -hmm. the political part of it. That, that yeah, that's that's actually really valuable to have gone through. Uh, it's funny, you reminded me of, of another side of that story that I didn't get into much, which was the political side. I actually did a similar thing, but secularly. So uh, I started out very early on when I was getting political. I was very Marxist. I was definitely a Marxist. Uh, then an objectivist, an Ayn, classic Ayn Rand objectivist, convinced me of that. And so I became an objectivist, the exact opposite of a Marxist for, for a while. And then I realized that that was all baloney. And so I, so I went through all of this, this process. So I actually did actually, I was convinced of these worldviews and bought into them, lived them, uh, and then, but then realized they were false and got out of them. But have, to have done all of these things... Uh, so that now when I'm in the middle and I'm thinking like, oh, okay, I, I have, I guess I, I started out for many years not having this kind of arrogant confidence that I must be right. So I'm always very much checking, fact-checking. So while I was a convinced Marxist once, so I can be wrong about things. I was a convinced objectivist once, so I can be wrong about things. So I, I took very seriously what, what uh, why do I have confidence in a thing, right? So I need to have good reasons and, and, and they have to be objective reasons. And I'm always concerned about uh, not fooling myself into believing something. And so that, that has affected me a lot in uh, deciding my trajectory and where I've ended up in places. And people like interact with my work now, they see it like it's very arrogant and very like, you know, this is the position and stuff. But um, it took a long time to get there. So like these, the only positions I see that on are the ones that I'm confident in. But like the ones that I'm not confident in, I'm not, you know, writing confident articles about uh, those I'm still working out. And the ones that I am confident that's decades in the making, right? Uh, and I've probably swung many different directions on that issue before I got there. Um, so, uh, and so hearing your story, I see, I see like, I see affinity there. That's a similar thing. Like you, you've been through the different phases. And so you know what it's like to be in that mindset. And so now you're like thinking like, well, okay, let's figure out what is true. And then the, how you do that, right. Is the, it becomes important. Uh, and I think that that matters a lot to how people end up in a better place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the second part of that was you were talking about the um, the the spiritual moments that you the the uh, religious um, experiences you had. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to people about my I try to be as honest as possible with and as objective as possible, because I, I, I really want to know what you know, what is true about the reality that we live in. So when I, I usually don't talk yeah. about religious experiences, but when I do, I always preface it with, you know, it fits into my worldview. That is very important when we're trying to objectively evaluate things. Now, I didn't have any crazy ones, but there's also um, meditation can create what is like religious experience. Drugs can create, and I 
did my share of drugs and you know so i've had <laughs> my religious experiences there too which these the ones that i consider religious experiences but if i was to become because i was agnostic for uh not a long period of time i've just always had this i would at least be and i tell this you know a lot of times uh to people is i would at least be a deist just because mm-hmm. right. um, kind of like the planning thing, you know, I've just always had this belief or idea that there's something bigger, which totally could be because of my upbringing. And, and I realize these things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I try to evaluate things as objectively as possible. And I'm probably one of the few theists that's actually a fan of your work um, because yeah, right. it. It, it makes us think objectively about things. You approach it, of course, being, you know, I love, you know, Bayesian epistemology, Bayesian analysis and all of this. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, uh, solidarity. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, so yeah, if it's, I apply it to more know, things than just just the history subject, too. Right? right. I apply it to my philosophy and everything like that. Because that was a eureka moment. I was an anti-Bayesian for a while. That's another example. Uh, it was trying to, I was trying to argue with someone and refuting it. And it was like mid argument. I realized I was wrong. And then it was like, there was that like eureka moment where you're like, holy crap, this, you're like, you, you, everything opens up and you're like, oh my God, this explains everything. And <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, not a lot of people have that epiphany moment uh, and get it. So it's, it's cool I, I to, actually, to meet someone else. Yeah. I actually came to the realization that I was, Bayesian in my analysis and didn't even know it because that's most people really are right so like yeah yeah. so when I started learning about you know um the Bayesian probability and Bayesian analysis and my wife will you know tell you that I flew for my company um the first few years that I worked at this company man I was you know gold and platinum with most airlines because they were just so short-handed (laughs) <laughs> and she is deathly afraid of flying. And uh, she's like, how do you do it? I, and I would recite to her statistics, you know, mm-hmm, how many yeah. flights go out a day versus how many actually crash or have these different things. I li- I found comfort in statistics. And so the more that I learned about, you know, probability in general, yeah. um, the more I realized I- I've been living most of my life finding comfort in statistics, you know, so <laughs> I'm a Bayesian guy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It, it kind of just fit fantastic with it. So kind of turning on that, what made you decide to, because for the people who don't know, which I doubt there's anybody here who doesn't know your credentials, um, you are definitely someone who is credentialed to write on things such as the historicity of Jesus and and things, because a lot of people who take your position uh, don't have the credentials and and you really have the education to back it up. And what sold me on you was your debate with Craig. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. The resurrection debate, right? Yeah. Uh, Washburn, I believe. Yeah. People people can find that video online. I I might do uh, just a side thing. I I just got a transcript of it. I might do a rescoring of that debate coming up. It's on my list of things to do. Uh, But but yeah, go go on. I'm I'm interested to hear what you uh, take on. So I, yeah. So being at that time a Craig fanboy, as most philosophy of religion themes are <laughs> today um 
I kind of had a unique perspective because I'm one of the few theists who uh, liked. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. The the four horsemen. The first. The 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 first one. The uh, oh. Oh, uh, well, there's Hitchens, Dennett. Hitchens, yes. Right, so yeah. when Hitchens, just because of the, when I went through my angry fundam, anti-fundamentalist phase was about the same time that I had discovered, you know, debating and uh, philosophy of religion, these different things. And mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of my theists or Christian friends are like, oh, he's so terrible. And when I listen to him, <laughs> the fact that he had, you know, to be blunt, he had the balls to go after organized religion, the church, uh, mm -hmm. you know, especially European and these things. I, yeah. I totally admired that. And, you know, philosophical, you know, people can talk about whether philosophically or not he was real sound. I loved his tenacity. So having become recently a Craig fanboy, when <laughs> I had saw the debate, regardless of, you know, the content that was there, I was really taken aback by the confidence that you had. Um, I thought that you were a very good rhetorician. You were very quick. You were very, I mean, it, it was one of the best back and forths as far as right, giving yeah. Craig, you know, a, a hard time. That yeah. <laughs> you know, someone after the fact, like, uh, like there, there were things that were like a lot of unfinished threads in that debate. Right. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I dropped some balls because they ran out of time. Right. The clock ended. Right. Uh, but someone, someone came up to me and pointed out to me like, you had him on the ropes the whole time. Like no one else has. And you know how we know this is usually in a debate. Craig has completely dispatched his opponent, uh, rhetorically at least, right? And then he has time at the end to evangelize the audience, right? He's, he yeah. can actually burn clock just pitching the religion, right? Like he's not even doing the debate anymore. Uh, and in mine, he was arguing down to the last second, right? <laughs> so he didn't have time for that. And then there was someone in the audience, and someone said it was Mike Lacona, but I don't know if this is true, but there was someone in the audience during Q&A uh, pitched in the ball and said, oh, we noticed that you didn't get to evangelize, could you maybe take the opportunity to do that now? And so in Q&A, he got to do it, uh, which I thought that was fascinating uh, thing. But but yeah, I definitely had him like having to argue down to end of clock, which which is, if you notice, that doesn't commonly happen. So, uh, so that yeah. is true. Uh, we were pretty equally matched, I think, in terms yeah, of our yeah, rhetorical I, I, I skills. Agree. Absolutely, I would agree because... Um, Knowing what I know, philosophy, because my my main area is philosophy and um, I, I'm total layman, but I've spent a lot of years. I ended up in a very high quality philosophy group about 10 or 12 years ago. And all of the, you know, new up and coming superstars were in there and I didn't know it, you know, and it was a, a year before I could even talk in there uh -huh. <laughs> because I didn't know what they were talking about. So, so I did get a pretty good trial by fire in education and knowing what I know now, you know, there's a lot of technicality and philosophical weight uh, to different debates, you know, like mm -hmm. Hitchens, like I was talking about with Hitchens, he just kind of took it to Craig, but technically, you know, Craig was in, in my opinion, superior given my, you know, understanding of philosophy and i thought that craig pretty much every debate he was in you know it was like rinse and repeat because he would bring the same yeah. things and yeah, people yeah. would would bring up these different points that really didn't attack it 
So when I got to see the debate with you guys, and then mm-hmm. later on, Sean Carroll, I love the debate. Yeah, with that Sean was a Carroll. really good one. Yeah, that's one of my yeah. favorites as well. Yeah, it's there's not many debates there that I put in the win column uh, from Craig just because of the technicalities of it. But yeah. Carol is definitely up there. Shelly Kagan is definitely up. Yes, there. your debate. Uh, it's worth there. worth a shout out to Kagan because that a lot of people that was a very technical debate. So I think a lot of people don't watch it or can't yes. or not as into it because it was very very a deep philosophical debate, like like full on. Uh, and and that was another example of where Kagan de- did get the better of Craig on that. Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. Craig Kagan was right. Also, that was that's another side of it. But yeah. I mean, apart from that, because I, I actually it's funny you might find this weird to hear i actually hate debates uh um i'm I'm good at them you were pretty good at it yeah yeah i'm good at them and i'll do them because i study the skill of it right so like i take seriously debate is in and of itself a skill uh and craig was a professional debater even before he became uh evangelical missionary right so so he's bringing like literally professional debate skills to the table and i think a lot of people who think well i can just go and argue with him and that'll be fine it's like no no there, there's really specific skills going on here that uh that you need to have this can be used for good or evil right so uh, i find like clocked debates have the disadvantage that it's more about rhetoric than than getting to the yeah. truth uh and to give you an example of that like uh if, if people watch my first debate with mike lacona um, I definitely had him on the facts all the way through and 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 different certain aspects of rhetorical moving and so on but it was our second debate that I thought was the most useful debate. Uh, and because we agreed, now our opening statements were still the standard combative podium debate, but everything after that, we sat in comfy chairs and the goal of the debate was to understand why the other person believed what they did rather than to win, right? Oh. So like, so uh, so we actually had a much more productive, interesting discussion in that debate, in our second debate. And it was funny because a lot of Christians came to see combat. They came to see Lacona slam me down, you know, that kind of, they wanted to see war and they want to see victory. They didn't want to see mutual understanding. Uh, but I, but in my opinion, that was actually the mo- one of the most productive debates that I had with someone that I had a, a opposite, with a Christian, certainly. Uh, and um, I've had other, you know, I've had debates. I did a debate with an atheist on moral theory, for example. So I've had debates that weren't Christian aligned, but where the debate actually went in productive directions. Like we were actually both interested in trying to get somewhere rather than trying to outmaneuver the other, embarrass the other, show up the other or whatever. Uh, and, and I don't like having to do that. Right. So I, yeah. I would prefer, I prefer like an informative educational debate, which is why I prefer written debates because it gives wow. both of us time to really parse our words, to really fact check, to put some references in. Um, and so I, I've done, uh, I've been using a new format where it's like 1100 words or more, not very short entries, but you just go, 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 go so that people don't get like bored with TLDR. Uh, yeah. they just see, here's the case, but there's so many entries that, that it's not like you're losing the opportunity to make a point. You get that opportunity eventually. Right. So the, the debate actually goes somewhere and it's, and it's more academic, I find. Um, so oral debates. Yeah. I, I don't like them. I know people love them. They're entertaining and they do bring a lot of people in, like they fill, they fill seats. So it, it, for educational purposes, that's how I approach debates. So this is my opportunity to tell people things that they won't have heard before. And then my hope is that they'll go research them themselves. So they won't just trust me, but they'll go like, go fact check. So that's how I approach debates and also to outmaneuver the whatever tricks are being pulled. So, <laughs> so, so yeah. I know how to do that. Uh, and so uh, I think that's, that's why I took the skill of debate seriously when I dealt with, when I debated Craig. Uh, and I think that that's what produces a, a more interesting debate that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you were most definitely prepared for it. Um, 
it because like you know everybody else like i said even even after that debate there were so many people it's like rinse and repeat it's like you know what he's gonna say but like you said it, it it's like it's like a professional soccer player you know yeah. playing against uh <laughs> soccer against uh a high school you know so, because it, yeah. there are so there is such it's an art you know you're yeah. And that's my thing is I'm not a good rhetorician. So, I mean, I like debating. I think basically just for, for the sport and the fun of it. But, you know, I grew up having to fight a lot. So I think it's just <laughs> kind of like an intel, intellectual fight now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But you, you had mentioned Lacona, uh, Lacona and I, I'm actually a pretty big fan of his, not because mm-hmm. or just because he's a theist. But because when I read his last book on the evidence for the reg- resurrection, the attempted uh, being objective, yeah, uh, understanding his bias, wanting the facts to fit, and all these things that he made extremely clear in it, I I, I pride myself on being intellectually honest. So when I hear people come from a yeah, position, Kona like, definitely is right. So that's yeah. that's one thing about him for sure, which got him into trouble, but that like, you know, some people did like stand up for him when he actually was willing to say that there might be stuff in the Bible and the gospels that is allegorical and not literal, like with shock, you know, like, uh, and, um, you know, which should be where Christianity has gone by now. Like the fundamentalism has really been destructive to Christianity as a faith and as a worldview. Uh, and so I I don't think like fundamentalists don't see it that way. Craig would not agree with me, but, uh, I think it's been a big problem. Uh, whereas Lacona is like willing to say, you know what, why don't we accept that there's allegory here? We don't have to take this literally. And, you know, that, like, and then, you know, the Sharks came out uh, against him on that. But uh, and he's landed well since, so he, he's all right. But um, but that showed me, like, he was willing to, like, be honest, basically, rather than right. try to tow a party line. Um, and so uh, that that I do like about him. And he's good company. Uh, I've yeah. hung out with Lacona a few times, so he's a good guy. Yeah, I've seen a lot of – I think him and – him and Bart Ehrman are like really good friends because they go after each other pretty good. When they oh, do they? I, I actually haven't seen Lacona oh, and Ehrman yeah. interact. Okay, yes. I didn't know this. Yes, <laughs> they they have to be hanging out at uh, you know somewhere else beforehand <laughs> and after. And they say they are good friends, but well, I like Bart because he's I'm skeptic by nature, you know, and and you know Bart is he's all about. Just because he's not a believer doesn't mean I'm going to discount his work. Yeah. You know, and, you know, a lot of what he does, though, is just communicating mainstream consensus, right, to the public, right. which he's really good at. That's like he's really good at that. Uh, and no one had done that before really effectively. Uh, and he does it better than anybody. So, like, Jesus interrupted in like how to popularize an idea versus academics. You look at his forgery and counterforgery, which is a solid peer-reviewed academic monograph on ancient forgery in relation to the Christian tradition. And then he wrote the popular book, Forge, which is a really good popularization, just a quick summary for everybody. And if you want to dive deeper, you've got forgery and counterforgery. You can go in and get the footnotes and all of that stuff. Um, so he's really good at that kind of thing. And I, I think there's a, sometimes people treat him as he's this fringe radical that he's like, he's a, he's a Shelby, he's another Shelby Spong. And it's like, no, yeah. he's, he's super yeah, mainstream. He's, yeah. Yeah. He absolutely <laughs> you just don't is. know that those are the mainstream views you, you've been told, you know, from the pulpit or whatever. Like a lot of Christians have been, have think that conservative Christianity is the mainstream, but it, it no, it's conservative mainstream. 
Oh my god. You know what? With with a lot of these guys that I have in the chat now, I've been trying to tell them for so long this North American Puritan literal principle fundamentalist Christianity is not the norm. You know, the the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church, Episcopalian, none of them hold to um, inerrancy of scripture. None of them mm-hmm. hold to this literal principle. It's literature. You know, let's approach it as literature and we can try to, you know, with textual criticism and all these other tools, then we can look at it and, and see maybe what they were trying to convey. We don't have to come with this fundamentalist Puritan approach that mm-hmm. we have here in the U S and unfortunately one thing that I, you know, make clear to them all the time is in the U.S., the masses are really ignorant about church history, doctrine and things. And the fundamentalists are the mm-hmm. loudest and they are the public evangelizers. So this is what <laughs> yeah. they hear. They got the money. They as adopt. Well. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's so they take in all these views that they don't realize aren't the main view in christianity worldwide nor historically and i think this is changing uh we noticed like if you know the the trend of the last 20 years like the the rise there's the percentage of atheists in the u.s has significantly increased um but if you look at the stats it is actually if you look at the no what they call the nuns uh right the people who say no religion has has hugely increased but half the people who split none half of them go atheists the other half are still religious they're just yeah. saying to hell with this this organized religion stuff, right? So, and they're they're going their own path. Many of them are Christians, but they might not answer Christian uh, on on a poll because uh, because of the humility aspect of this. Like, I'm not going to like claim this political status. I have my religious beliefs. I'm I have I am no religion. But then when people start asking, well, you believe this, you believe this, you believe this, you can show like, well, technically this person is a Christian, but they're not answering this Christian. Uh, and so, uh, so then that's increased significantly as at the same rate as atheism has increased in the last wow. 20 years. So I, I do see in a sense that the evangelical, the fundamentalist hold on this waning, but it's still super powerful. They still control a lot of stuff, but, uh, it, it is waning, which actually kind of explains a lot of the desperate moves that they've been engaging in and try and maintain wow. power. Like they're getting more lo- louder, more, uh, combative, more angry, uh, and that that's like there's uh, the political commentator um, Zakaria, Fareed Zakaria, points this out for Islam is the same way. It's like when you see these violent Muslim radicals, like that's the death throes of fundamentalist right. Islam, like because they've their their arguments no longer work. So that all they have left is violence. Right. Uh, and, and the people they're killing mostly are other Muslims. So like right, they're, most of what they're doing is killing the, what they see as progressive Muslims, the Muslims going in the future in a future direction. They're busy killing them most of the time. And then occasionally they come and kill some of us and then we get angry. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like we're not noticing like, well, maybe we could have done more to help like the liberal progressive movements uh, in Islamic countries before all of this happened. Um, but it's, it's you know, we can still do that now. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've got the, like I said, this, the double split. We've got rising atheism. We've got rising people leaving organized Christianity, but still trying to find a path for it. And I, I, yeah. I have mentioned this before, but I, I've done many debates. I used to talk to Christian youth groups. Uh, they would, you know, they bring me in. Uh, there was an organization. It's now run by um, uh, McDowell's son, uh, Sean. Uh, 
but but before it was someone else. But I've I've done gigs for Sean as well, uh, where they'd bring me in. I would give a lecture on something to Christian students, uh, high school students usually, and then the Christians would Q and A me, and and so and I'm sure what really happened is I would come and do that, and I would leave, and then they would try to inoculate them against everything I just said. But uh, but I still at least got to get my ideas out there, and I remember like having conversations with a lot of these kids and. One of the biggest problems with evangelical, especially white evangelical, uh, uh, that particular uh, section of America, they're hemorrhaging youth. Yeah. People are leaving, right? So their future is doomed if they don't do anything about this. A lot of hand-wringing books written about what to do about this. Uh, but I was, I'm talking to some of these, these you know, Christians who were going to leave. They're like Jesus freaks of the 60s. Like their, <laughs> atti- their attitude was like, look, you're up here on the pulpit talking about, you know, condemning gay marriage and abortion we want to go feed the poor and like solve social justice issues. Like we, we want to go do Jesus-y things right. is the way they put it. And, and it's like, and that's why they're not getting them, right? Like that's why they're leaving. And and I read this one book and I went to this creationist museum, not, well, I've been to the big one, the, the Kentucky one, but I went to this other one, the small one. And they're, they're a little bookstore and they had a whole book on this. What do we do about the youth leaving the church? And their whole program was get more biblical, get more literal, get more fundamentalist. And I'm like, yes, you absolutely do that because yeah. <laughs> that is going to drive them all away because <laughs> that is what they're running from. Right? That, that is what they don't want. Like they, they really, they get the the sort of liberal Jesus idea like that. That is really popular and really resonates and can motivate and, and lead to like really interesting, cool social stuff, like right. advanced society, right. In a good way. Uh, and I think there's more freedom to do that now. Like the youth can say, to hell with you. I can follow Jesus in my own way now. Right. Uh, and there, there's more of a, and I think in a way like atheists have kind of paved the way for that, like by pushing for atheist recognition is just not, not evil commies, not Satan worshipers. Right. Uh, like you remember like the eighties that it was like atheism yeah, was bad. Right. And yeah, it took a while yeah. for atheism to become like, Oh, it's okay to be an atheist. So, uh, but I think that also gave permission for Christians to say, you know what? I don't have to be this kind of Christian. I can be the kind of Christian I want to be. Uh, and I think that has been a positive development as well. And so I, I'm rooting for the Christian youth who are, who I want to do Jesus things. I like those people because they, we often agree on what we need to be doing to fix the problems in society. And, and those are the people I can work with. Right. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it, it's funny because I actually had uh, some Christians who tried to, I guess they thought that it was a pejorative to call me a red letter Christian. A and red letter like, Christian. <laughs> yeah, because oh, I get it. I get it. Okay, I haven't heard yeah, that before, so, but that's right. Okay, I yeah, understand so, the metaphor. So, because it, one of the jokes is, if my view is not a heresy, then I need to review my view. <laughs> you know, because I, I don't buy into church dogma. Now, I do put stock into, you know, a historical perspective. I do put stock into, you know, the great minds of the past, whether they're theological, philosophical, you know, I I do take all of that into account. But an organization who has a vested interest in me following their version, you know, and and just because they want to throw around this word heresy, I'm like, I don't care. That doesn't matter. I want to know what it, it has to make sense to me. You can't tell me that, you know, like right now, I'm very agnostic on the Trinity view. You know, I'm leaning more towards a Unitarian view. And the Christians are like losing their minds. They're just (laughs) like, no, you know. Yeah, right. And that's that's always fascinated me because there's not 
there's not inherently any moral or ideological reason it's to be so right. It's right. It's to be so obsessed with the Trinity, like defending that concept. Right. Uh, it, it's like it, you know, if we were to admit that they were different, for example, so Jesus was a man who was inspired by the Spirit of God, like they weren't identical. Like, what does that actually? It doesn't really do anything harmful to your religion, but what it does is it goes against the authority. Like the, the authorities uh, banked its position on this thing, and if you say that they're wrong about that, well, they could be wrong about everything, and so they lose all their social power. Uh, and so I think that very much is an institutional thing, which is why, like the Nicene Creed, that was a political committee created by a tyrannical emperor specifically for the purpose of unifying the church under his political goals, right? So it's, right. The, 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 the Christians to, to venerate the Nicene Creed is, is like almost the darkest of ironies in history is like, you should have completely repudiated that creed by now. You should say like, oh, that would be like the Nazi party getting the Christians together and telling them, pick a church. Uh, right. And then, and then, you know, they pick a church and they go, we're going to go with that as the, as the correct thing is like, actually, you should be the most suspicious of that result of, of anything that's happened in Christian history. Uh, and but there were all these other Christian movements at the time that were being denounced by the Nicene Council. They were legitimate Christian movements. Like, why, why should you just say that they were wrong? Uh, and so, yeah, I think the, the whole obsession with the Nicene Creed does uh, surprise me, I must say. <laughs> for it still to be the case and for it to be historical, like the idea of paying attention to history, that's the one thing Christians should be quickest to get rid of. It's like, right. we don't really need that. It doesn't have anything to do with, like you said, the red letter stuff, right? Right. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing in there that requires you to believe in the, the Trinity. Uh, right. So um, it becomes this distraction. It becomes this uh, tool. It's a shibboleth, right? It's a, it's a device for social control. Like you either buy this or you don't, if you don't, you're suspect. You know, Absolutely. you're a pinko commie, whatever. You're an enemy of, of everything. If you're not willing to buy this one thing that we're selling you. Um, and, and so that, that is what makes institutional religion pernicious, which you've discovered. And, and it is oh, good to see Christians realizing that and getting out. And we're seeing that more and more, I think, it's, which yeah, is a, yeah. a positive it's, development. I mean, no clear statements or, you know, um, you know, feed the poor. Uh the take care of the widow, take care of the orphans. You know, the people that Jesus was angry with was the mm -hmm. religious crowd. Jesus yeah. was the most angry. So even if let's let's say that the Jesus of the Bible didn't exist, let's say that Jesus was just a um you know another Pharisee and he was this a uh, very philosophical and theological Jew. If we could just look at him as a humanitarian and mm, look at the mm -hmm. things that he had said, you know, about the people, he was with the worst of the worst. He was, you know, uh, the, the churches, the religious are the ones that made him angry. He was with you. I mean, of all people, expert here. I mean, tax collectors were just completely, you know, they were terrible people and, and you know, prostitutes and all these different people. And he was accused time and time again of, you know, hanging out with these sinners and these non-Jews. Yeah. And, and he, you know, the, as he it, says in the story, like, these are the people who need me. 
Right. right? Uh, it's like, this is why I'm hanging out with them. Like, I, I'm not endorsing what they do necessarily, but that, that's, um, yeah, it's like missing the message. And I, I would oh. even translate that. So like, I mean, we've hinted at a few times at my infamous status as a mythicist, right? Uh, 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 someone who thinks, and, and to say like, I actually conclude that the upper percentage chance, the upper odds for Jesus existing as an actual rabbi, like you're talking about, uh, is one in three, which is still a decent percentage. So even though I think odds are that he was a made up character, ultimately, um, I still think there's a chance that there was a guy, but it doesn't matter, right? So like, even if, let's take the gospel of Matthew, because most of what the red letter stuff is that people teach really comes from Matthew. Uh, like the Sermon on the Mount is a classic example. I, you know, the Luke's version is just a rewrite of Matthew's. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount, right? Even if, as you know, Dale Allison has published, many scholars have published the point that that was probably written by a, a group of Jewish Torah observant Christians after the Jewish war. It was not something that Jesus sat down and taught. But that shouldn't matter, right? So like you're thinking, you're talking about like philosophical rabbinical logic uh, it does. You don't need a particular single guy to be the hero who says every correct thing. You can have a committee of rabbis that comes up with an important and valuable way of formulating their what they think are good values. And so, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of that is apocalyptic teachings, right? So a lot of like the resist nothing, like uh, let someone enslave you, let someone kill you, let's you know don't fight back. And all all of that stuff is apocalyptic in the sense that you're gonna the whole world's gonna be melted soon, so it doesn't really matter. Don't risk sinning by fighting back is, is the whole point. It's like, don't risk it. Just it doesn't matter. Like you're going to live forever in paradise. So who cares how much, how abused you are for the next 50 years, 50 years is nothing. Right. So like that, that's, that's the, that was the attitude behind it, which is what I disagree with. But the, the positive angle of it is what, what are we talking about as what is potential sin here? What are we talking about? What are the crimes being portrayed here? What, are, what is being portrayed as the thing we ought to do? And it's all compassion oriented, right? Ultimately it's like, like, don't, don't use violence. Uh, don't sue people unless you have a good reason to, right? Like, Jesus says, don't sue them at all because there might be a risk that you've sinned yeah. in doing so. Um, but but that, that's extreme. But I think like the, the idea of um, being forgiving, like the idea of forgiveness, the idea of caring for the people who are suffering, the poor, the, it, it, recognizing the poor is not lazy. I think there was someone threw a klystron underneath about that. Uh, Jesus didn't go around teaching that the poor are poor because they deserve it, right? Like, uh, oh, those criminals, they deserve it. No, he's like, no, like they're wayward or they've been downtrodden. They've been oppressed. Yeah. They've, they've hit hard times. Uh, we could, we could, there's a lot of ways we could have sympathy for them. And even when he does like the widow's mite story, even if these are stories being made up and not something one guy said, it doesn't matter. Someone said it, right? Someone yeah. wrote it down and they were promoting this as their ideal. So even if you see like the hit, like even if Jesus is a myth, he is the people are representing him in the gospels as their ideal man, right? Like they're saying like, this is what they, we're teaching you. Our values, what we think humanity should be doing through the vessel of this representation. So it, it doesn't actually matter whether he was a real guy or not. What matters is, is this, is this correct? Like, is this the ideal you should follow? Um, and it doesn't matter if there's a real guy. And so, and so you can still take what you're talking about, this philosophy aspect of it, this rabbinical philosophy, uh, as like, what can we get out of this that is actually correct? What is the correct direction here? And like you're saying, like, yeah, it is all compassion for the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed. Uh, it is not, uh, let's go beat up abortion providers. Like that's not in there, right? Let's, yeah. let's, let's uh, like, you know, condemn, let's kill the gays. Like there's actual candidates in the US that have run on a platform of executing gay people. Like that has happened oh. within the last like, 20 years. Like it's not that long ago uh, and they'd get like hundred thousand votes or something. So that's yeah. a lot of people. 
that is so that's not in there right like the the, I, the right. ideal man that the gospels are portraying is not doing that uh the most he's doing like he does condemn over condemn some people for things that they shouldn't be condemning them for like blasphemy for example yeah. um so so the, their ideal is in my opinion is not a perfect ideal there are problems there uh i think jesus is not depicted as the greatest guy uh in my view but if you're going at it looking for i want to find the ideal person in this you can find it right so you, you can actually get that out of there uh and and so people who focus on those those the compassionate positive sides of it uh, I think are going to be helping humanity move forward into a better place generally, like for all of us. Uh, and so I would wish more Christians to do that. Uh, I'm just disappointed that, that it, it, there's so many not doing that and doing the opposite of that. But, uh, yeah. but you, you, you have the same frustration I see. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, you know, that this whole idea of going out and having this, first of all, let, let let's just for the sake of argument concede that jesus um existed was a real person and we're looking at the whole new testament almost all mm -hmm. of it is written to the church so when they go out in public and it, it mm -hmm. specifically says that um you know the gospel uh. is foolishness to those who are perishing or there's a veil that hasn't been lifted yet they have this need to go out into the public and point out specific sins that they think is a sin and they don't suffer from. And that's what makes me so angry with them targeting mm. LGBT, with them targeting different groups. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm pro-life, but this is when a, when a mother is facing this decision, that is not something that's taken very lightly by her or anyone around them. The worst possible thing in the world you can do is condemn her. She needs love. She needs to be, uh, you know, she needs to be, she needs to feel that love. She needs somebody reaching out to her. She doesn't need condemnation. And that's what makes me so angry about the fundamentalists. And to bring it, you know, full mm -hmm. circle, they have such an impact on politicians that it yeah. absolutely just, uh, uh, you know, and you know, as well as I do, most of these politicians don't give two dams about yeah. what version of Christianity is right. This, that, or the other, they're just trying to get elected. They yeah. Money, care. money and votes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely. So when Jesus went out and loved the world and, was a doctor for the sick and didn't come for those who were well and didn't go out pointing out all of <laughs> yeah. these sins except to the religious people. For some reason, they have this idea in this country that we're supposed to go out and, and, and tell people that you're sinning, you need to repent. That is totally antithetical to what Christ taught. So if you're going to be a Christian, then you need to follow Christ you know, and obviously I would disagree about the, you know, Christ and this and that, but you're, you're far more advanced and oh. <laughs> in that area yeah. to, to go back and forth about. Well, I've, I've made this point on my blog uh, more than once, but at least once, uh, is, uh, that the contemporary fundamentalist or even just, let's just say evangelical, like, uh, uh movement in America, um, that, that causes most of the problems, I think really, yeah. um, them. So, uh, Th th they're actually worshiping the Antichrist. And I, I can actually make an internally sound argument 
for a, from the perspective of a Christian. Uh, and if you, so if you think of a, what these ideas meant, like what do the Antichrist mean? It, it means the opposite of Christ, right. right? That's literally what the Greek means. Uh, and it did mean like, if you think of Christ as a spirit, as a, in, not a literal spirit necessarily, it just means like the ideal I was talking about, like being Christ-like is following a particular ideal, being, like you said, being like Christ, uh, doing what Christ did, right? He hung out, like you said, hung out with sinners. Uh, he, who, the only people he got angry with and condemned, you know, angrily, other than like he once, he yells at Peter un, unfairly. But yeah. uh, you know, apart from that, like he's mostly spending his time ragging on the religious elite, the conservatives, the, uh, you know, the, the people who are the upper class, the, the hypocrites who uh, pray in public. This is another example. So Jesus teaches like, you hypocrites, you pray in public just to like show off like how faithful wow. you supposedly are. And then Jesus goes on and says, no, you pray in a closet. Praying is between you and God. Like if you're trying to show off, you're trying to do public stuff. That's a red flag right there. Like that, that, that is exactly what I don't approve. I think it's between you and me. Right. So you, you go into the closet and do the, you know, between you and God, right. That's, that's the prayer. And he goes out of, this is the character in the book gospel specifically says this, like, this is the arc of the story is like, no public prayer is hypocritical and, and proper prayer is private and not public. So what, what do we see in the, the conservative Christian movement is pushing for public prayer. And, and that's kind of died out, but there was a big period between like the 80s and the late 90s where they were really pushing for public prayer, fighting in court to get public prayer, like force people to do public prayer. Uh, they're still doing public prayer in Congress, like all of this stuff. But if that, that's where they're backing, they're backing the Antichrist. They're backing the opposite of Christ, a different spirit. And you can do like war, like pro-war Christians. That is the antichrist, right? That Christ Jesus was turn the other cheek, let him beat you, let him kill you, shoot him, shoot you in the head. Doesn't matter. You go to heaven. What do you care, right? Like that was Jesus' yeah. perspective, uh, as the character is written. So if you're pro-war, if you're pro-violence, you're pro-keeping a baseball bat by the side of your bed, you're pro-keeping a vicious dog in the backyard. You know, uh, that's very antichrist, right? You're worshiping the antichrist. And you go down the list, like attitudes towards the poor. You could pick any issue. Evangelical Christianity is on the side of the opposite of Christ. They're actually yeah. worshiping the Antichrist. Uh, and of course, they'll never hear this. They won't listen to me on this because I'm an atheist. Yeah. I, I'm not an authority. Yeah, I, they, I have no credibility in this case. But as a historian, I'm telling Genetic you. fallacy. <laughs> yeah. But as a historian, I can say this. Like this is this would be the concept of the earliest Christians, right? The earliest right. Christians were very much radicals. They're very egalitarian. They're very communistic, right? They were, they were like, their idea was to create, and if you get this from Paul, especially, you get a little bit of it in the Acts, uh, is the idea is we're going to create a community. We can't conquer the Romans. We can't end injustice in the material world. So what we're going to do is we're going to create our own little community within a community. We'll obey the laws, not getting, not getting any conflicts, but we'll do our own thing. And we will support, we will create the support network for everybody who's poor, the widow and all of this stuff. Uh, we will support each other and create this sort of like egalitarian, communitarian system and wait it out until God comes and melts everybody. Like th that was the original Christian mission. Yeah. And of course it gets institutionalized. It gets turned into like classicism is pushed there, recreating hierarchy. So the church is now there are, we're going to support the upper class over the lower class. We're going to support men over women. We're, you know, like all the standard stuff came back. Uh, but that was the later institutionalization of Christianity. The original movement was very much like getting rid of all of that. That was their idea. Um, so I'm, I'm always happy to see when Christians are willing to go back to that. The original, like, let's yeah. get rid of these oppressive ideas and be much more egalitarian, much more mutually supportive uh, and create a community within a community. And of course, their idea, like if you were to realize it in the Marxist sense, is like if we keep doing, if everybody did this, 
it would fix the world, right? You know, that's the that's the that's the dream in a sense. Uh, but you have to deal with, you know, all the fundamentalist Christians in your way. Yeah, yeah, and 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 for all of the the fundamentalist Christians out there, Marx was a Jew. So. <laughs> hey, gentlemen, right, right, right. as was Jesus. But yeah, yeah I exactly. In, I want to sneak in here real quick, and we got a couple of questions. We're hitting on the hour. Okay, excellent conversation, and we've got a quite a lively, uh, lively following right here. Shout out to Captain Dadpool. He did mention this earlier. I thought it was pretty funny. He said he's fifty fifty at the moment. Uh, he's. Uh, on the fanciest uh so he's uh he's atheist by the way but he said he's not really convinced of the mythicism thing but he's on his way there shout out to godless oh. engineer and derek from myth vision podcast for stopping by some heavy hitters and a lot of other folks a little bit too many to mention at the moment now well if we've got some questions uh we can run long um yeah. we, we can go ahead and just do that gratis and keep, and keep okay. going for a bit so if you've got some q a we, we can bounce that around okay so question from iron charioteer uh, let's see. Ask Dr. Caria if Jesus is a myth, would that make Paul the founder of Christianity? Of course not. Uh, yeah. So um, Galatians 1 to 2 is probably one of the most useful two chapters of the whole. Attention to uh, uh, in Galatians. And he, it comes up in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, the early part of that chapter, uh, that Paul was a latecomer. Uh, he actually joined the religion and changed it. Now, the changes he made created a sect that actually ended up being the descendant of all or the ancestor of all current sects of Christianity. The original sect of Christianity died out. Uh, the ri original sect of Christianity was Torah observant. They were Jews. Uh, they, they believed in following the aspects like the temple temple part of it um but they were very much follow the fault be kosher uh you know like they were actually going along uh, circumcised all of this stuff got to be a proper jew to be christian paul came along and said you don't have to be you don't have to convert to judaism to be a christian anybody can join and then of course gentiles flooded the church and they took over and basically the the jewish church got sidelined and, and squashed ultimately um but but he was a latecomer so if you look at paul's account of things. It was Peter primarily, maybe a little bit of James and John who were brothers of each other, according to the gospels anyway. And possibly that's true. Um, that they were called the pillars. Paul refers to them as the pillars, meaning the people who founded the church, the people who were holding up the church, essentially. It was Peter, James, and John. Uh, and so these are the original people who originally claimed to have visions of Jesus claiming to have risen from the dead and be the Messiah, etc. cetera. Uh, so they started the religion. They started it as this little Jewish sect uh, within Judaism as a whole. Paul was a persecutor of them. He says he persecuted the church for a while. It doesn't say how long or what exactly he did. He doesn't actually say he killed anyone or what he did, uh, but he, he was a persecutor and he switched sides. He said, I'm going to, I'm wrong. I'm going to join this church. I think this church has got a good idea. He phrases it as Jesus appeared to me and convinced me to join, which might be true. Or he might have realized that, that he was wrong to be opposing this movement. He might have agreed with the social moral values of this movement and switched sides. So um, so he, he was a latecomer to it. But he did make this key innovation, which is that you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. So that when people talk about Christianity, you're mostly thinking of it as a Gentile religion. You're not you're thinking of it as in opposition to Judaism. Uh, and, and that isn't how Paul conceived of it, but it is a product of what Paul conceived. So in that sense, Paul is the founder of Christianity as we know it today, but he did not originate the religion. The religion began with these guys before him who were people he knew, like he met them personally, ultimately, not right away, but eventually he met them and had a detente with them and created some sort of diplomatic relationship with them so that their churches could unite. 
Um, but that that's the, you know, the, the uh, what do you call so it? I, no I problem. Shell, yeah, shell, I shell person. I can't think of the t- but what is the I word? Don't... Nutshell. That is the nutshell story. Yeah, yeah, that's a nutshell answer. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Well, I hope that, so we got Dan from Dear Christians podcast. He asked, would you consider someone who's trying to follow the philosophy of Christianity and the teachings of Jesus to be a Christian if they don't follow him as God? So that'd be like a pragmatic Christian, I guess, like mm. um, maybe uh, uh, Jordan Peterson. He's kind of a pragmatic kind of Christian. Well, I wonder what what is the question exactly? Because you can frame that as there is no God and therefore you're a Christian atheist, which is a thing. There are people who are atheists but believe in following Christianity culturally. Mm. Uh, or you can say that Jesus was a representative of God which would have been Paul's view, incidentally, and probably and the, the apostles before him. Jesus was an agent of God, sent by God to ex- instruct things, or inspired by God in one way or another. But he was an ordinary man, all in the ultimate sense, um, or at least at one point, right? Like he he lived around. He was like an angel embodied in in a human body, kind of thing. Um, but you could go on and not even buy that, and just say that Jesus is just an ordinary person who got right. Like you put, you could pitch it that way. But still believe in God, right? So you could say that Jesus is still teaching what God wants to be taught, but Jesus himself is not a God. Now, that's that's a different kind of Christianity, which is a known heresy. There there have been Christians who teach that as well. I don't know if there are any sects, the organized sects today that teach that specifically. I could be wrong. I don't, there's like 10,000 sects. So I don't, so I don't know if that relates to the answer. Yeah, actually, I think you covered it. In fact, the the Christian the Christian atheist thing is actually pretty interesting. Let's see what uh, secular secular rarity asks. In terms of toning down the Christian nationalism in the U.S. right now, Doctor Carrier, do you think it is more helpful to point out the lack of evidence for Jesus or flaws with his message? Oh, definitely don't approach. So I wrote a whole article on this. You can find it on my blog where it's Finca is right uh, is the title of the blog. And my position is don't use mythicism. That is not an, uh, an evangelical argument you should be using to argue with Christians. Uh, uh, the only way that any, the only way they can accept even the idea that Jesus didn't exist is if they've already agreed that the religion is dodgy or, and unreliable. So like, like you have to be out of the religion to f- actually objectively examine this. So I say, if you're, if you're arguing with Christians or if you're, trying to persuade Christians of something, uh, always argue a fortiori, which is the idea like, like grant some things, like just, just for the sake of argument, just say, well, just, we're not even going to challenge that Jesus existed. Uh, in fact, you, depending on what your goal is, you could say, I'm not even going to challenge that he wasn't inspired by God, wasn't resurrected, right? Like, let's just look at what's in the gospels. Like you can say like, let's just grant all these things to you. And then say like, from within your perspective, uh, you should agree with these things. Uh, and why, why don't you, right? Like, and, and go through the gospels. Like that is a more effective way if you want to get Christians on your side on political issues, uh, rather than like, if your goal is to convince them to not be Christians, then you should go at uh, much easier to prove things. So like, for example, that the resurrection is not a believable thing. So like, like the resurrection debate is much more like grant historicity, go at the resurrection, uh, go at argument from evil, like go go at things that, are way, way easier to prove uh, very conclusively, in my opinion, uh, if that's your goal is to get them out of Christianity. But if your goal is to, you, you don't want to make them unchristian. You just want to like get them to where their Christianity is going. Uh, 
just let's just assume they're tr those points are true and then look at the character of Jesus in the Bible. Now, you can, if you look at it literally, it's not a great character. Uh, but you can have this conversation about like, well, let's put away the negative points. Even even if both of you can agree, you and the Christian, that that's not a great image for Jesus. We'll just, so we'll not follow that. Uh, but then you go to other things that he says that are really good. Let's like, why don't you follow these things? Why aren't you doing? And the prayer, why are you against Jesus himself, your own God and Savior, on the public prayer issue, uh, and then like in the helping the poor and all of this stuff. So you can, and more, it's more effective to change a political position or, or ideological position with a Christian by arguing from within the beliefs they already have, uh, sure. rather than trying to like go right at them. Like, well, there wasn't even a Jesus, right? Like you've lost them at the moment you said that. So uh, even though it could be correct and defensible, uh, that isn't relevant uh, if your goal is otherwise. If your goal is to simply get them to change position politically uh, and values and, and be a more, a less toxic uh, contributor to society and someone who's actually going to move society forward and help the world, uh, you know, help, help the downtrodden and so on. Um, do, uh, you know, as we've said here today, more Christ-like things. Uh, you can argue from within their belief. That's the much more effective way to argue it, if that's your goal. Now, as somebody from the Coast Guard, do you answer questions from people from the Army? I got to check first. <laughs> Is that Jim Hall? Well, that would be Marines. He would have said Marines. Uh, no. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> so Captain Dadpool asks, uh, what is Dr. Carrier's take on Josephus? Um, I believe mentioning of James, the brother of Jesus, and later James being executed and Jesus being made the high temple priest. Is this the same Jesus? Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion in there. Um, so only one passage in Josephus mentions Jesus supposedly Jesus called the Christ um, having a brother at all, uh, much less named James. And so there's this one passage in Josephus that's unrelated to the other passage, which uh, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, etc. cetera. Um, that other passage is obviously a forgery. I have a whole article on it on my blog if people want to really dive into that. Uh, I don't think it's defensible at all as anything Josephus wrote, but there's this other unrelated passage in a completely different book of his history uh, where he talks about this James character who gets killed, executed, uh, extrajudicially, and, and, and the Jewish elite gets outraged by his killing and depose the, the, uh, the, the high priest who instigated it and replace him with another man named Jesus. Um, now, that Jesus is obviously not our Jesus. It's a different Jesus. Jesus just means Joshua, by the way. So it was one of the most common Jewish names uh, of men in the time. So like lots of people were named Jesus. It's not unusual. Uh, it also just happens to mean savior of God, which is a very convenient name for a savior of God, just saying. But uh, but it, but there were actual Jews who were named Jesus. So that wasn't weird. Um, so anyway, uh, in this story, there's there's this story about this happening. Uh, and there's two two words in Greek. It says, this is the Jesus James is the brother of this Jesus who is also, who's called Christ. My view is that those two words were added later, that they were not written by Josephus and that originally this passage had nothing to do with the same Jesus that we're talking about. It's a completely different Jesus. It was that other Jesus who got appointed to the priesthood after uh, to in basically to avenge his brother's murder is the, basically to mollify his family. He was made a uh, high priest in in replacing the guy who killed him, his brother, basically, is what happens. The straightforward political story, we, we see this kind of feud management a lot in the way governments are managed. But um, that's my view. And, and if people want to know why I think that is, I think there's there's uh, good evidence for this uh, 
position. Um, I, I've, I've published a peer-reviewed academic article on it. And if you look in Hitler, Homer, Bible, Christ, which is my book that has all of my peer-reviewed papers and stuff on this, as well as other articles, it includes this uh, this research as to why this is the case. Um, but other other people who really want this to be authentic say like, well, this proves that this is a historical Jesus, because how could he have a brother named James? Uh, right? So, uh, so that that's where the debate stems from that. I think that's what they're referring to here. But so it does come down to the question of whether those two words in Greek called Christ were written by Josephus or not. Uh, and, and even if that's the case, it could be that Josephus misread his source because all baptized Christians called themselves the brother of Jesus. Uh, sure. They were all the brothers of the Lord, right? By baptism, you become the adopted son of God. So therefore you're the, Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. This is what, you know, Paul says. So Josephus might've even written those words and still misunderstood what that meant. Uh, right. So he might've mistook it as a biological relation when it wasn't. Uh, I don't think that's what happened. I, I think, I think the words were added later and by accident, actually, I don't think they're added deliberately. Um, there's a long explanation as to why that is. It's actually happens commonly in manuscript transmission. We have tons of accidental insertions into manuscripts. Um, but anyway, that's way too long answer to that question. No, you're fine. Now you've been out there on the West coast. Are you a, a college football fan at all? No, if I follow any sport at all, it would be r roller derby and uh, sometimes hockey. <laughs> oh, then that's okay because you're not you're not going to uh, offend uh, Spartan theology here. He's a okay. <laughs> South Carolina uh, football fan, but so uh, Spartan asks. Uh, let's see, Doctor Carrier read has he read Chris Tilling's book How God Became Jesus, and what does he think of this strong view of the Trinity? No, I haven't read that book, so I can't comment on that. Yep, and go Clemson. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> oh, and uh, somebody's doing some promotion for you. After the show, check out Dr. Carrier's blog. Link in the description, guys. So thank you, Secular Rarity, if anybody wants to go and follow Dr. Carrier's uh, blog right there. And I don't see any more uh, questions. If I missed any, I apologize. Uh, repost them real quick. If we got five more minutes, I might pull one up. Eddie and uh, Dr. Carrier can close out the show right here. So it is time for the hard questions, Dr. Carrier. You're right. <laughs> iPhone or Android? iPhone. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is the last song you played on your iPhone? Oh, uh, that's going to be really weird. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not telling you mine. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's a long story as to why, but Killing Strangers by Marilyn Manson. Uh, hey, I like some Marilyn Manson. <laughs> yeah, I do too as well. I, yeah, I've just yeah. recently found some of his stuff that, that I, I was not into before. And so I've like been getting more into uh, his musical composition, the way that he structures songs actually is impressive. Yeah, the my my last song is three hours of sleep music because oh. <laughs> <laughs> i have my i'm a scatterbrain i'm adhd as can be so when i go to bed all of my great thoughts come you know and I oh yeah to, right yeah i i have um like uh meditate sleep meditations and sometimes i'll go through the whole list before i'm finally asleep because you know my brain just it, it goes that's when my 
best you know creation comes or or yeah yeah no I, i'm that's not unusual actually so really? yeah that, that totally okay. makes I'm sense yeah um no I, I know a lot of people like there's uh, in the shower is another place that suddenly people get insights um and i it used to be me i used to be like that uh i i don't i don't get the insights in the shower so much anymore but um for a while i i had um waterproof pads that you could write on and oh. I still do in my shower. So anybody, any guest who visits and has an idea that comes to their head, there's a waterproof uh, writing pad that they can oh, that put is, that in is the shower. Amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but me, I, it's just um, I, in the car, right? So driving, I have thoughts. And uh, and some, sometimes I have to pull over and write them down. But uh, usually I'm good at, like, at least retaining some of them. And so that when I get my destination, I've got to, like, write these things down before I, I proceed. But uh, I like driving. And I do a lot of long drives, especially now I'm... So, um, so yeah, that's a meditative experience for me now. Yeah. The, um, the, yeah, the shower thing, I would say most of my thoughts, uh, if I'm being transparent, if I had any good thoughts, they would probably be immoral. So I don't oh. write much down <laughs> in the shower. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. All right. <laughs> and I'm really going to tell off on myself again here, um, that I actually have, a kind uh, I I drive a service van and I have kind of a shelf that I made here with a notepad and now I keep uh -huh. my eyes on the road yeah so, no I know what you mean yeah. I've I've done this too like while you're driving yeah. writing right and I love I'm good I don't even need to look I I can don't have to look at my right. writing I can write you know just which is why I used to like the original phones that had. Uh, keypads right because physical keypad you could do like you could text and drive more safely when you didn't have to even look right. at your phone uh yeah, so yeah, like that, that used to be a thing but that, that we don't do that anymore but so i iron charioteer charioteer I'm, I'm i'm from the south iron charioteer they defeated god I, i'm assuming that's a reference yeah. to the biblical passage so how gnosticize well he's a uh he or she i'm sorry i didn't mean to assume but is a regular so uh i have to read the question uh how gnosticized was jesus in other words did greek pistis sophia influence the gospels and for those who aren't familiar pistis was the greek goddess of loyalty and trustworthiness and sophia was divine wisdom I believe it was in a yeah. The, there was a Jewish tradition before Christianity, and it you see it in places in Christian sectarianism in the early years um, of Sophia being the reference to the Holy Spirit as the wisdom of God, um, as a female person, uh, right. you know. As a, so, uh, so that is a thing that occurred. Uh, pistis actually just means is the Greek word for faith. You mentioned loyalty. It is actually means for faith, trust. Uh, any kind of trust uh, or, or relying you on. You heard it here on my <laughs> podcast. Okay, I have been fighting this battle for so long, Doctor Carrier. <laughs> I, you know there is a fallacy of etymology, but etymology is important when yeah, we're yeah. talking mm -hmm. about ancient words and and they're trying to describe things in their language. And yeah, pistis meant trustworthiness it didn't mean yes it's uh, having it's trust confidence the, reliability these are all tied together as a concept back you. then I love uh, you. <laughs> uh, but to get to the question um I, i'm gonna like really blow people's minds if you don't already 
uh, my real fan, I guess hardcore fans already know this, but uh, I actually don't think Gnosticism existed. Uh, and uh, the, the West Star Institute agrees with me, which I was really astonished to find, which goes very much against type because they're very liberal Christian minded and Gnosticism was such a useful construct for them. So for them, even them to admit uh, the evidence doesn't indicate that there was Gnosticism. Um, I have an article on it. So people want to understand what, how can I say this? This is impossible, right? Uh, I have a whole article on my blog. You can go there and just look up Gnosticism on, you know, search it in the, the search screen. Definitely but, um, but it, it is a disciplined position basically. The, and I, I was realizing this as I was doing my research project, my postdoc for on the historicity of Jesus. Uh, and so I was so gratified to see that it, when my book came out at the same year, Westar came out with their report and I was like, yeah, okay. That's what I was thought too. Uh, and, and you'll find like in my book on the historicity of Jesus, I never mentioned Gnosticism. Like it's not in there. Uh, and, and the reason is, is that I wasn't comfortable using it because I wasn't confident that it existed as a thing. Uh, and then the Westar Institute came out with its report and I was completely concurred with their report uh, on this. So what, what we mean by Gnosticism is a modern Western construct. It is a scholarly construct of the 20th century. Uh, and, and it has this basically this list of beliefs that constitutes Gnosticism. Um, all of those beliefs existed, but no sect had all of those beliefs. And every sect had at least one of those beliefs, right? So, okay. so it, it is not a useful distinction uh, anymore. And if you want to understand right. why and all of that stuff, you can go uh, look at my thing. And it had a lot to do with mistranslating. Um, but but in, in the ancient Greek, in the texts, when Christians are complaining about Gnostics, uh, for example, like uh, Hippolytus and these other, you know, heretical, anti-heretical writers, um, right. what they mean is, Literally, they mean Christians who claim to know things. They're just talking about, the, and it's just a shorthand for these Christians who claim to have spiritual knowledge that we don't have. Well, they'll turn around and say that we do have spiritual knowledge. It's just different knowledge than what they're claiming, right? So that so everyone's a Gnostic. So it's just a question of these guys are just the bad Gnostics. They're they're fake Gnostics. It's really the but we're the true Gnostics. We have the true spiritual knowledge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you understand in the in the dialect and the context of the time. Gnosticism wasn't a thing. So let's change that question to how much did a lot of this mysticism, Jewish mysticism, which is a much broader, real subject, influence early Christianity? And I, I do think there is some influence there. Like this idea of, I think, uh, like you can look at Paul's chapter, 1 Corinthians, I, is it 10? I think it's 10, uh, where he talks about Christ as the rock that the Jews follow, this magic rock. Right. Uh, and, and if you, you don't know from the Bible, like you look at Jewish lore up to that point and around that time, there was a lot more lore about this rock than you find in the Bible. Right. So that and it was it was called Miriam's well, for example, which means Mary's well in Christian speak. It's the same name. So they called it Mary's well from which water flowed for to feed the Jews. And this rock magically hovered before them. And, and so while they went through the desert, uh, in, while they're going from Egypt to uh, to the promised land. And so this, this magic rock, which was called Miriam's well, followed them and, and out of it came water. Uh, and so that, that, that fed them and fed the flock essentially. So you, you can hear, you can see in this a lot of metaphors that, that the Christians are borrowing, right? So right. Jesus flows from Mary, right? Well, Mary's the mother of Jesus, right? And so this, there's a lot of these uh, things that there might've been a lot of, we know there's a lot of mystery teachings that we don't know what they were because they were kept secret. Paul, Paul references some of them, but a lot of them, he says, He's not going to talk about them. Uh, we get some of those references in Ignatius and others. Where he says, I can't talk about these things. There's some secret teachings. So we know this was, there were secret teachings. So we don't know what they are. And I think speculation is idle. So we can't just declare 
things, but it's possible that there were teachings about Sophia and its relationship to Jesus cosmically wow. like and, and that there might be you know a, a feminine spiritual power might have been integrated into their cosmology that that's entirely possible we have hints of it in some christian sects but it's all lost so we can't really reliably reconstruct first century doctrine on this um so so a lot of that stuff was floating around uh, to yeah. answer that question uh it just wasn't gnosticism per se uh, i i would avoid using that word there's there's a bunch of different ideas some may or may not have been involved in this or that sect it's much more complicated and messy. Uh, so, so you see me grinning because there's, are, are you on TikTok? I am not. No, <laughs> you, you have got to get on TikTok. So <laughs> hyperhumanity who has thousands of followers and has, uh, he, ca he calls himself a Gnostic and he debates Christians about God or the Christian God being an evil God and killing and, mm -hmm persecuting Gnostics and things of this nature. Um, he, he, I'll, I'll try to, I'll stay humble about it. Anyway, he, <laughs> he, he talks a lot about Gnosticism and, and what Christians did to them and things of this nature, mm -hmm. even had debates on it. And, and, you know, we've gone back and forth uh, <coughs> about, you know, the Gnosticism thing. So you heard it first here, hyperhumanity. <laughs> Richard, Dr. Richard Carrier, you don't exist. <laughs> so they are they are dying to know what are you drinking, Dr. Carrier? Yeah, there's been multiple questions about that. Uh, it's going to be a very unsatisfying answer tonight. Oh, um, so I I've been I've been sampling uh, the Kirkland Scotch. Ooh. I have no idea what it is because if you, if anybody knows, Kirkland is the Costco brand. Oh, really? And what, what Costco does is they'll buy usually a high quality stuff. So for a longest time and possibly still Kirkland vodka is actually great goose vodka, but you're not supposed to know that. Uh, right. So it, it, it's like, uh, you know, it's like um, Kenmore uh, right. vacuum cleaners used to be Whirlpool vacuum cleaners. They would just right. put the Kenmore label, which was the Sears brand on and then sell it for less. It's the same stuff. They just sell it for less. So Costco has these Costco brand, the Kirkland brand, uh liquors and so they have a vodka they have a like uh, tequila and they have all of the things and so i got this this scotch and and there's actually two they have two kirkland brand scotches and they're different uh and for a while they had one that i'm sure was mccullen because it really tasted like mccullen this i i don't i can't figure out what this is i have no idea it's definitely not <laughs> mccullen i can tell you that it's not bad i mean it's right. it's a decent like uh affordable scotch it's not like a high-end it's not a it's not Lagavulin, uh, you know, yeah. it's not Lafroig, well, but I, I love the humility, you know, that's um, so I learned the hard way that just because scotch costs more doesn't mean it tastes better. <laughs> I, it really so, depends on what you get, right? I, uh, I, yeah. and it doesn't have to be single malt. That's another thing. People are obsessed with single I was going to say, I actually paid almost twice as much for Johnny Walker Green. Oh, yeah. Okay. Black. And I like black much better than I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that that makes sense, actually. Um, yeah. No, I, I do. If I'm drinking scotch, I'm usually, it's either Irish whiskey or it's legitimate scotch, like from Scotland. Uh, th there's some exceptions. I, I like Basil Hayden. I, so I am straight from the South. 
It's all bourbon all the time. I'm drinking. <laughs> if anybody cared, I'm drinking Jefferson's. Okay, Jefferson's is good bourbon. You know what? I don't know I'm that right. one. How sweet oh. is that? Is that like a sweet bourbon, or yeah, where would you put that on the galaxy of bourbons? On the sweeter side. Okay, so um, that's probably not my thing. I, I like more of the Scotch. Like, like Basil Hayden yeah. is a good example. It's more like a Scotch. Uh, than, for example, Maker's Mark, which is super, like, way too sweet for me. Yeah, uh, well, you know what? It's um, it's a little. I would say maybe a little bit sweeter, but smoother. So where it's does not... it land, like, with respect to Bullet? Uh, I, I oh used, yeah, I used no, to live in Ohio, so I yeah, it's way better than Bullet. <laughs> okay, no, that's that's yeah. that's high praise. Yeah, 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 good to know. I, I would put it up above Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark's a little bit more sweet, but it's a little more harsh. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's this one is probably a little bit more sweeter, but it's so smooth that you know on the rocks, it's it's fantastic. I'm actually so, gonna look for that. Uh, so what, what was that again? That was it is Jefferson's, and it you can actually get um, this is the very small batch, but you can get uh, Jefferson's. I forgot what it's called, but they actually put it they barrel it on ships. So every bottle is just a little bit different than. Okay. Intriguing. And and it's not, you know, it's middle of the shelf. It's about $35. for. Well, that's what I like. Like, I I mean, obviously top shelf is great when it's, you know, when on its occasion, but uh, no, I like good, like reliable, affordable, decent liquor. Mm -hmm. So pasta Mike, who, um, who was generous enough to, uh, produce this for us and does all of my logos my background the introduction how awesome was that introduction he turned me on to um angels oh i can't even think and remember the name i'm sorry pasta um it's angel something but they're it, it's oh. bottled in um port wine barrels or finished in port wine barrels mm-hmm. and it is phenomenal it is um pasta you're gonna have to help me homie where you at you're hanging me out <laughs> dry it's it's I saw angels, en- angels envy angel so it's angels envy it's yes. uh, oh it's- angels envy no i don't know that one uh yeah someone in the comments said like what about a whole stream to just talking about different liquors i it reminded me of uh for those who are interested in how to pronounce all the scotches just Google Brian Cox, that's C-O-X, the actor, if you know, uh, from X-Men and various other films. Brian Cox, the actor, and Scotch. And you should find a website where there's like a hundred clips of him. And all he does is he just takes a sip of Scotch, of whatever brand it is, and pronounces it correctly. <laughs> and that's we it. Have our very <laughs> own. We have our very own. His name is Jim Benton. And he, he he does Meaning Forge podcast, and he will show you, Pasta has seen this intimately, up close <laughs> and personal, how to properly taste bourbon. There it so, is. That's it. Yeah. Brian Cox <laughs> drinking scotch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to uh, Brian Scotch at the, what is it? He's on. Uh, Brian the, Cox. He's been in a million things. He's yeah. a well-known actor. Hmm. Oh, yeah, he's a funny guy. I like him. So, okay, we're going to wrap this up. Um, And the last question that I have, I'm going to steal one from Pasta Mike because Pasta Mike is kind of like my mentor. How dare you? How dare you say that, Mike? He's my my younger, bigger brother. 
So he's yeah. like seven much, foot eight. Much younger, much younger as well. Let me make sure he's you... like seven foot eight, four hundred pounds. You know, so <laughs> really, <laughs> this is Goliath uh, here. We've got some exaggeration, I think. That's right. Yeah. So, what is your favorite ice cream? Wait, you're asking me my favorite ice cream? Yes. So I'm lactose intolerant. So oh! the answer is so none. What's your favorite frozen yogurt. Or can you? Have I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. You know, you actually, I'm not a dessert man. I don't really drink. I don't really consume no. any of those things. So I don't have a favorite of those things. Uh, if you were to ask me my favorite dessert, it would be something like uh, like strawberry rhubarb pie would be a, like an example. Doctor Carrier, I am so disappointed. <laughs> I was such a fan. All the way up until this point. I don't do ice cream. I, I do sorbets, but I don't have like a favorite. Like I don't yeah, like go around and like sorbets are hard to have favorites. So well, what's your, <laughs> yeah. let's, your let's, That's do, uh, let's play devil's advocate and in, in a god world, what's your favorite natural disaster? That past oh. rascal, that rascal god throwing out natural disasters at the world. Uh, are we talking about like like uh, ones I can think of or ones that have actually been proposed? Like so. <laughs> Yeah, so is it like a tidal wave or earthquakes? Which one do you? You know, I actually no. Here's what I'm my answer. Well, the flood, and here's why. Um, because uh, you know, there's all these cultures, ancient cultures had a flood myth, uh, and my favorite one of all of them is the Chinese flood myth because in the Chinese flood myth, the humans win. Ah, got it. Because <laughs> the myth is, you know, God is angry and is flooding the world, and so humans built dikes and dams and engaged hydrological engineering and defeated God. And I'm like, yeah, that's those are my peeps. <laughs> yeah. What? So yeah, that's that's my favorite one. You you can beat a flood, submarines, ships, ducks, like you know, it's, that's true. Fish, fish are fine. Uh, mm. Yeah. So like, flood is a much more survivable. Uh, yeah, as a exactly. theist, I have a few bones to pick with God too. So <laughs> okay, you, you heard it here, you've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yes. Doctor Carrier, I am uh, so humbled that you have joined us. Thank you so much for coming on here. It's been fun. Uh, Thanks I, for having me yeah, on. I, I awesome. love the conversation. I a, yes, I have had a great time. I would love to have you back sometime um, for sure. It's of course, it, yeah. And talk more maybe about your work. Um, I'm kind of a rambling on kind of guy. So, well, I I think it's it's valuable to like rather than talk about the same subject. I would do a million shows on Jesus yeah, mythicism, for example, exactly. but to talk about what our views are on things and common common values and where we are in things and and life history and stuff like that. Always valuable to discuss. So I, I don't consider it a, a distraction at all. Well, I, I definitely appreciate that. And and that was kind of my goal with this is, you know, I have, there are so many debate shows. There are so many, I wanted to have a, because this is, um, I have a, a podcast platform that sends it out to all the major platforms. And I wanted to get to know the academics, the philosophers, the historians, who they are, what kind of person they are, because you guys have to talk so much about the books that you've written, the positions that you have, and it's, you know, and it's on and on and on. And I want to know more about you. So that was yeah. kind of my idea behind. And thank show. you. I, I, I appreciate that because, you know, it does, it does sometimes get tedious coming on. You know, I enjoy talking about the things that I, I've written on and so forth, yeah. but yeah, if it's the same thing over and over again. Right. Uh, but getting, getting personal, getting into like these life experiences and, how we got to where we are and uh, where our ideas land in the real world. 
right? Like you can get into the abstract, you can talk epistemology, you can talk metaphysics, you can talk theology. Right. But where where are we in terms of the ideas that actually hit the pavement and actually affect how we interact with people and, and how we're trying to make the world better if we can? Absolutely. And I agree 100%. That's that's why I think you and I have the same bane of existence for presuppositionalists. Oh, God. <laughs> I avoid I want, them mostly, frankly. I want to find a common ground. You know, you say start. that, but um, we could do a whole show on the one productive thing from presuppositionalism. And that's saying a lot. Um, is yeah, that is saying uh, a lot. <laughs> and, and I, I suppose I'm being unfair to like Victor Reppert and so forth, which, which they take yeah, the yeah. argument from reason, which is not presuppositionalist. It's very important. It's an yeah. empirical argument. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but they did ask an interest. They did ask interesting questions. They just come up with the wrong answers. Uh, and I think it, it was valuable. Like I found it was very valuable for me to tackle their approach to things because in the process I thought through, for example, intentionality as a philosophical concept. Now, that's something you have to look up. It's a weird technical term. Um, I had never sat down and thought through that as like, how does physicalism explain intentionality? Uh, now you can't explain it. And it's actually fascinating, like how you can explain it. Uh, but I wouldn't have gone there had I not been trying to counteract this kind of apologetic. So, so when they ask interesting questions that that you are you haven't answered before, uh, like the ontology of logic, where does logic come from? Why does it? Why is logic true? That's an interesting question. Now they're they're using that as a like a cudgel to try and force. So, uh, so anyway, that, there are useful things you can get out of presuppositionalists, is what yeah, I say, that, but, but very rarely. <laughs> and, and for the atheists who have to face somebody with the presuppositional logic is nominalism. That's the magic word. So, <laughs> <you're a> <laughs> so, well, thank I'm you a, so much. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm an Aristotelian nominalist, which is a whole other thing. But that's, a, yeah. that's for another time. Well, hey, but, hey uh, I like the philosophical. We're, hey, I'm all about some philosophy. We can definitely do this. Yeah, I'd love to, love to talk about what are abstract objects. You could do a yeah. whole oh, thing on yeah. that. And, yeah, Universals for sure. and abstracts. There we go. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you all so right. much. If, it's been lovely. If you, oh, absolutely. If you have to go, I understand. If not, um, I will talk to you in the green room behind okay. the doors we will. Um, i'm gonna see everybody out here thank you so much again i am so humbled by you coming on here and uh giving us your time and telling us so much about you thank you so much dr Carrier. all righty yeah it's been uh, excellent thanks for everybody for showing up too love it wow dr carrier you know when i had sent him a message i'm a theist He's an atheist. He's an atheist, I would say, probably activist. I think he identifies as that. Uh, when I sent him a message, it didn't take him, I think, six hours to respond to my message. And he was gung-ho from the beginning. And I am so humbled by uh, his willingness to come on to this show, being as new as it is, and as small as it is right now. And so I am so thankful for Dr. Carrier 
you know, coming on here and, and bringing all these viewers. Thank you, everybody who showed up here, all the questions, all the chat. It is such a humbling experience, and I am so thankful for it. Um, before we go, I want to say thank you, Pasta Mike, with Normalizing Atheism. Um, I consider you a mentor. You have taught me so much um, to get me to this point. I am, I've learned so much about production, editing, 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 whatever. You get the point. And uh, uh, on-screen performance, you guys have no idea how much time Pasta Mike has spent with me, coaching me, uh, proper etiquette and questions and things like this. And I am so indebted to him. Thank you, Oz, over at Tang and Tart. Uh, for being, you know, an inspiration along with Pasta Mike. You guys are the ones who really got me into this. So for future episodes, uh, like I said at the beginning, I'm going to work more on production skills. I want to get some layman uh, philosophy series going and things of that nature. Spend a little bit, a little bit more time with the family, try to balance the time out. But I am so thankful and so happy for everyone that was here. Thank you for all your comments and activity and everything you do. Have a great night. Hey, again, thank you so much for joining the stream. Don't forget to go into both streams. We've got Normalizing Atheism and Brute Facts Podcast up. Like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Go over to the links in the description. Dr. Carrier's blog and book links are in the description. You can actually hop on over and support Dr. Carrier as well. Thank everybody for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it, and we will see you next time. A shame, something new under sun. Mm. You can't take back some things you're already done, done. No. You blame things that you do.